Today's scripture reading will be Exodus 21 to 17. And in your pew Bibles, that's page 61. That's Exodus 21 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For, the, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Job. I, I asked Job to, to read all 10 of the commandments, and I'm going to be asking uh, all the young men who read over the next couple of months to do the same, even if I forget to ask you privately. Here's me publicly asking you to do that. Just uh, in order to keep these um, in front of our faces as long as possible, um, but today we are going to focus on verse number seven, the third commandment, which says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And I want to uh, look at this particular commandment under three headings. We'll want to see three things about it today. And the first is, I want you to see something of this commandment's surroundings. This commandment's surroundings. We're going to just dive right into this, all right? Now, in seeking to understand what the Lord is prohibiting and uh, trying to figure out what it is that the Lord requires, it's always helpful, I think, for us to consider the stuff surrounding the commandment. It's best not to view these 10 words as, you know, just kind of like bullet point of random rules, sort of in arbitrary order or whatever. Instead, I think it's more helpful if we recognize that these commandments come to us in a particular context. And we saw this a little bit last week, didn't we? As we considered the first and second commandments, we uh, considered the redemptive context of those commands, we, we noticed that it was Yahweh who had rescued his people from Israel. And then we considered something of the, the context of the contest between the gods 
where in bringing his people out of Egypt, uh, Yahweh showed his total superiority over all of the gods of Egypt, all of their false idols and their images. That Yahweh showed himself to be much stronger and have no rival among those. So there was those contexts. And both of those contexts really, I think, help us to understand, even before we get into the commandment properly, just how making um, idols, if we were to engage in any kind of idolatry or making an image to worship in, if we were to consider having any other gods before this God who has saved us and has demonstrated his superiority, well, given that context, those, those commandments that come to us seem like no-brainers already. We're ready to receive them and believe them and obey them because it's been, it's been so um, strongly argued and so powerfully demonstrated. So I'm trying to get you to see just how important the stuff around the commands are. Not only does it often provide justification for the law that's about to come, but it, in many cases, it also provides for us the motivation for obeying the, these laws. And this is most clearly seen, I think, in the commands that we are given as believers under the new covenant. Yes, there are all kinds of imperatives that are given by the Lord Jesus Christ and given by his apostles. These are commands that we must obey. But the stuff surrounding all of those commands, that's really where it's at, okay? Um, the imperatives, we often say this sort of a thing, the imperatives are almost always surrounded by indicatives, okay? So the things that we must do, the commands that we must obey are always kind of surrounded by uh, reminders of all that has been done for us in the gospel. And all of those indicatives provide the motivation for us to gladly and willingly obey. And I'll give you just one example of, of that. And to demonstrate just how common this pattern is, um, how I selected this particular example is that I just flipped in the general direction of the New Testament when I was preparing this and just pointed. Okay, that, that was my highly scientific uh, way of coming up with this uh, example for you. And the, the verse that I pointed to, and you're not going to believe this, but this is what I just um, flipped open to again. Maybe it, there's a crease in my Bible or something, but here it is. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see the, the commands there. There's a, a whole list of imperatives. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted to one another. Forgive one another. Imperatives, commands, we must follow them. But what's surrounding those commands is really where it's at. It's a reminder of all that, that we've been forgiven by God in Christ. This reminder of the indicatives of the gospel is what's going to fuel us to obey that command. Okay, so back to Exodus 20. Maybe you're tracking with me. 
Maybe you're, you're starting to see, yeah, it's important to pay attention to the stuff that's surrounding the commandments. But when it comes to the third commandment, you, you're thinking, wow, it looks a little bare there. And yes, it does. Um, but I would submit to you that there is still a lot of stuff that is surrounding the commandment. There's still a lot of surrounding stuff that ought to be brought to bear on this particular commandment. And what I mean by that is this. So this commandment has to do with the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. And that has been a major theme so far in the book of Exodus. Uh, I hope you've noticed that. For example, how can you forget the scene where the Lord's name was revealed to Moses and to the people? Uh, it happened on holy ground, you remember. It happened at the burning bush where uh, the, you know, the, it was the most amazing display of the holiness of God and the authority of God. But the highlight of that encounter was not the pyrotechnics, okay? The, it, it was the revelation of God's name. And remember that Moses was anticipating that um, if he was to go to the people of Israel and seek to lead them and bring them out, he anticipated that these Israelites are going to highly question him and his authority. They're going to ask, Why are, who, who's telling you to do this? And he would say, the Lord. And, and they would say, uh, who's the Lord? What's his name? And so Moses is asking the Lord, can you tell me what I should say to these people? How should I respond to them? when they ask who has sent me. And the Lord responds by saying, memorably, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. That's the name Yahweh. And say this also, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So you ask, what's in a name? And it turns out, especially in the case of Yahweh, a whole lot. That one name, four, four Hebrew letters, it seems to bring together several truths about who God is. It refers to, at, at the very least, it refers to his authority, his eternality, his self-sufficiency, his covenant faithfulness, his compassion. All of these are, are being proclaimed in the name Yahweh, a name that the Lord God was gracious to reveal to Moses and to his people. And his name also points to his mission. In Exodus, we've come to understand a little bit more about God's desire to have his name known among the nations, not just among this small group of people that he's calling, but wider still to all of the nations. And one of the big problems that we encounter in the book of Exodus, and indeed in our own world and time, is the widespread ignorance, or worse, the willful rejection of the name of the Lord. For example, when Moses and Aaron speak on behalf of the Lord, they go into Pharaoh, his courts, and they demand of him that, that he release the Lord's people. Pharaoh says, Who's the Lord? Who is the Lord? I'm not familiar with that name. 
Well, the Lord is intent on introducing himself to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and to the nations. And the way that he did that in this particular instance is that he unleashed these plagues on Pharaoh. Yes, as judgment, but also as proclamation. One of the purposes of the plagues, as we've seen, and, and by, the by the way, this is the same reason why God sometimes gave relief from the plagues through the intercession of Moses. It was for the purpose. Here, here's the purpose. Let me read it to you. They, it was so that they, that is Pharaoh the, and the Egyptians, would know the name of the Lord. That they would know who he is. So that there would be no doubt that he is God. And we'll come back to this idea of, uh, of the name for this purpose and for the purpose of mission. Uh, we'll come back to that in just a little bit. But just one more thing about the stuff surrounding the commandment. Let's not forget that as they're hearing this third commandment, the people are hearing it thundering from Mount Sinai. Okay, they're seeing flashes of light in, in preparation for this meeting with God, with Yahweh. They've had to be cleansed. They've had to abstain from anything and everything that's just kind of earthy and ordinary. And even after that, even after all of that preparation and cleansing, they have to stand safely behind this perimeter fencing because Yahweh is so holy. And all of this context, and I, I know it's been a lot. I've thrown quite a bit at you here. All, but I, I do so because all of that context is so important. If we have understood it at all, or even if we've just understood a decent chunk of all of that surrounding stuff, then we have understood something about the nature and about the name of God, about his highness, about his holiness, his otherness, his supreme power and authority. We've understood something of God's desire to have his name known and honored throughout all the nations. And if we've understood those things, then this third commandment should be already for us a no-brainer. We, we will have both the, the justification for it and also the motivation to obey it with a glad and a grateful heart. So we're ready then in the second place for the commandment's sp specifics. Some sp specifics of the commandment. Having a hard time saying that word, so I better take a swig of water here. The commandment's specifics. So the Lord's command concerning his name is this. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It's one simple sentence, and yet there's, there's a lot here. And I'll just be honest and let you know that I really struggled to know how much or how little to say about this, how much to, to tease out with you, because there's lots of different avenues that we could go down. For example, it would be um, possible and profitable for us to recognize that most of these Ten Commandments are negative. In other words, they are framed as prohibitions. 
there are things that you shall not do. Okay, so we, we would recognize that, but, but then it would also be possible and profitable for us to explore the positive side of all of those negative commands. Because for every prohibition, there's a positive good that the Lord would have us to pursue. And so we could talk about all of the ways that we could honor God's name and use God's name in a meaningful way. Uh, for example, to call, call upon him in prayer, um, to praise him. And actually, I do hope to say um, some positive things along the way. But I think it's most faithful to the flavor of the text here, as well as most challenging uh, when we consider the failings of God's people, I think it is probably most helpful for us to come at this from the negative point of view. And in some ways, this is unavoidable because the misuse of God's name in our day, even in our context, is so rampant, even among God's people, that it's, it's often difficult to talk about even the positive good without first confronting the sin. And I realize that, that what I'm about to say might just be autobiographical, but even where I see right uses of the Lord's name, so in Psalm 71, verse 12, for example, that's just one example, where it says, O oh God, be not far from me. O oh my God, make haste to help me. Or when I'm singing that great hymn of the faith, and can it be, and I'm singing at the top of my lungs about the mercy of God that is so immense and free, and then I come to this part, and it says, Oh my God, it found out me. And I find my voice going from full blast all the way down to almost zero. Sadly, I find that I'm not even really able to sing those words Oh my God. And three more beautiful words strung together, you could never find. Three more words strung together could not be possibly more positive or sweet. However, in my mind, those same three words have become so tainted by their misuse that it's actually distracting for me. So I hope that by focusing on the, the negative side of the equation, that we'll be able to kind of clear the way for all of the positive uses of the precious name of our Lord. So we're wanting some more specifics about the commandment, and I've uh, chosen uh, to limit myself to three, three general categories of specific ways that we might and do misuse the name of the Lord. First, we might misuse it as an earthy expletive. We might misuse it as an earthy kind of expletive. In English, we have this expression, it goes something like this, his, his name is mud. And I'm sure the roots of that expression go way, way back, probably centuries. But the popular usage of that phrase is said to be linked to a man by the name of Samuel Mudd, M-U-D-D. Samuel Mudd, he was a 19th century American uh, physician, 
and farmer. He lived in southern Maryland. Very well respected man, as you can imagine, given his station, his occupation. Very well respected, that is, until one fateful night, uh, a man by the name of John Wilkes Booth came to see Dr. Mudd with a fractured leg that he had sustained uh, escaping a theater where he had just shot the president. And um, Mudd, the physician, prioritized resetting the, the broken bone rather than calling the authorities. And for his association with Booth, Mudd was found guilty of being a, a co-conspirator in the murder of the president. And his name became Mudd, so to speak. And one of the worst social crimes that you could do, at least up until very recently, was to drag a person's name through the mud. Again, we ask, what's in a name? And the answer remains, a lot. A person's name stands for everything that they are, their character, their reputation, things that have um, taken a whole lifetime to, to build. When you, t when you turn a person's name to mud, when you drag it through the mud, that's really a high crime and a misdemeanor, or at least it should be. We should think of it as such. But it's not these days, is it? It's not. Uh, we, we think nothing about just totally trashing someone, ruining their reputation, canceling them. I, and I'm not going to camp out on that. I, this is another feature of this sermon is I have to resist the temptation to go off on a bunch of rants. Because here uh, in this sermon, we're not even just talking about mere mortals. We're talking, if it's so bad, if it's really that bad to drag an earthbound human's name through the mud, how much more so the high and holy name of the Lord our God? A proverb that Jesus spoke reminds us that it is self-evidently wrong to give what is sacred to dogs or to cast pearls before swine because they're just going to trample them in the mud. And yet, that is precisely what multitudes of people do. That is precisely even what Christians do when they use the high and the holy name of God and the name of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as an expletive or even as just kind of a standard expression of surprise or disbelief or frustration or anger. And this is what I mean by earthy. You know, it's just the most mundane kinds of situations imaginable that we will use and invoke this holy name. We, we invoke the most transcendent name imaginable in order to just describe a little bit of disgust or surprise of the most mundane events. And I really struggled about whether to give you specific examples of this kind of misuse of the divine name. It's, it's a tricky one because I don't want to break the third commandment in order to show you how the third commandment can be broken. It reminds me of this joke that I heard when I was a kid. There's this guy with only a thumb and like two fingers. And someone asked him, how did you lose your fingers? 
and the guy's like, well, I was working on this bandsaw here, and oh, there goes another one. You know? <laughs> anyway, I don't want to do that kind of thing by getting very specific with you. On the other hand, uh, I've noticed that, that this, this sin is just so common for Christians and it doesn't even seem to register on their consciences. And so I wonder if, 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 you, if people, if Christians need someone to just like really spell it out and say, no, you must not say, oh my God, or Lordy, or thank God, when you're not really thanking God, but you're just happy that you found 10 bucks that you could have sworn was in your purse. And it, yeah, it was. Or, you know, you know that you should do everything for the love of God, but you must never say for the love of God if you're asking your child to take his dirty laundry from the bathroom for the third time or the 300th time. I, I need to stop here before I start nicking off more fingers. But, but here's the general rule. You must never drag God's holy name through the mud by peppering it throughout your conversation, mundane conversation, as expressions or expletives. Here's the general rule. If you're not actually thanking God, if you're not actually calling out to God, if you're not genuinely asking someone to do something for his sake or for his love, then you are sinning, and you're sinning in a grievous way. Well, you ask, well, what if I just use the initials? You know, what if I just say OMG? What's wrong with that? It's just cutesy little text talk. You know, it's right, it's, it's right up there with a little smiley face emoji. You know, how could that be so bad? No, it's, it's bad. It's wicked. And what if you ask, what about substitutions? You know, can I say gosh? Instead, can I say, gee darn it? Can I say, golly gee willikers? Or, or like this Christian man I used to work with, if he, if he hit his, his thumb with a hammer, he would say, Christmas. You ask, what about those sorts of substitutions? And I'm like, what do you want me to say? Like, do you, congratulations, you found a workaround. Congratulations, you're technically not breaking the third commandment when you say, oh my gosh, even though I've heard you say it and you're like really drawing, you're like, oh my gosh. You're so that you can get just as close to that snow fence around the mountain without breaking through. And at the same time, you will have completely missed the point. And I'm, I'm quite passionate about this because as I say, in my experience, this is a blind spot for many, many Christians. I, um, 
I love to go to Latin America, for example. Love to be able to interact with Christians there um, who are hungry for the word of God. They're just, you know, eating up sound theology. They're evangelizing. They're growing. They earnestly want to live for the Lord, but they pepper their speech with taking the Lord's name in vain. I don't know a, a lot of Spanish or Portuguese, but I know the word Dios, and I know the word for my, and I hear them together an awful lot. And it's, it's a shame. It's a blind spot. We live in such a, a crass culture, don't we? And I, I hate to sound curmudgeonly. I, I recognize I'm getting that way in my old age here. But it's gotten exponentially worse, even in the last five years. And these days, you know, you can see the most vulgar kinds of slurs directed, say, towards our president. And you can see them on signs that people proudly display on their lawns. And the censorship laws must have changed somewhere along the line. I, I didn't know that they did, but, but now I can hear swear words on the news. I, there there's certain words that they're allowing that I didn't think were allowable at that time of day, at least. And honestly, you can't, you almost can't even watch TV anymore. I, so, you know, I head to the, the very last place that's still somewhat wholesome, the home renovation channel. You know, where you see people uh, fixing up their homes or you see, you know, a crew of professionals doing a complete renovation, makeover for some, someone else because they're, quote, couldn't be a more deserving family until next week when, lo and behold, they found a more deserving family. But anyway, I, I got to stay focused here. I, I got I to gotta keep on one rant on a time. Anyway, those shows are hard to watch for a lot of reasons. And number one, because they show all of the, they don't show you any details. You know, they don't, they don't want you seeing anything really too much until, because they're saving it all for the big reveal. And so you get to that point, the last three minutes, which it's all been building towards, they've been stringing you along for the last three minutes and, and what they show you is, you know, they finally pull away the, the doors that have that picture of the old house. And they pull that away and they turn, they turn and they, you know, put the camera on this most deserving couple. And if the networks censored third commandment violations, all you would hear for the next few minutes is beep. And friends, I'm not going to get all legalistic on you and make rules for you and your family. But can we at least agree not to fool ourselves into thinking that this is wholesome TV? They're, they're taking the high and the holy name of the Lord our God in vain. And there, there's a lot more that I can say about that, this uh, specific 
sort of um, vain use of the Lord's name, but I, I need to move on to a second one, one that I'm calling erroneous endorsements. And even this is not specific enough because there's many different ways that you can use the name or misuse the name of the Lord in an effort to kind of call him as a witness, whether this is to, you know, to speak an oath or to make a vow, one that, that for, uh, you know, may, you can't really guarantee, or maybe this is a, a vow or an oath that you have no intention of fulfilling and yet you're, call, you're swearing on a stack of Bibles or you're calling on God as your witness. That's a misuse of the holy name of God. And also under this head, we could talk about false prophecy, which is a, it's going to be a common problem for Israel throughout their history. Um, they're going to always be running into people, not necessarily from the outside, but from within, in their own midst who come and say, thus saith the Lord. They're attaching the Lord's name as an endorsement, but then they go on to speak falsehoods. And it's taking the Lord's name in vain. But I've chosen to confine my specific applications today to what I consider to be, from my experience, the most common blind spots for contemporary Christians. And, and so here's another one. I consider it a slightly milder version of false prophecy. I'm talking about the ease in which many Christians say, the Lord told me, dot, 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 and then to go on to say something that is not a direct quotation from Scripture. Now, I, I recognize that, that we have some differences here, perhaps, and that's fine. You know, perhaps this will make for some interesting group discussion in, in small groups, but on the, on the whole, I'm very uncomfortable with people saying, the Lord told me, or even the Lord showed me. I believe that the prophetic gifts that God gave in the early years of the history of the church were given by him for a very specific time and a very specific purpose. And I believe that when you have the completed canon of scripture, when God has finally and fully breathed out his word to his people, then there is no need for continuing revelation. And I know that some of you disagree with that view, and that's fine. It really is fine. That's, I, I'm not saying you have to agree with me 100% on that. And, and one of the reasons that it's fine is because I've, I've found, in our context at least, that it doesn't make a whole lot of practical differences, you know, in terms of our worship or, or whatever. What I've found, though, is that the biggest differences those differences of opinions take is in the differences in our language. And I'm suggesting to you, on the basis of this third commandment, that we need to be careful even about our language. Okay, yes, it's just differences about language, but differences about language, it turns out, are, is very important. The Lord wants us to be exceedingly careful with our language. So when you say, God told me, or God showed me, 
and then you go on to say something that's not in the Bible, then you're in great danger of taking the Lord's name in vain. And let me start with an extreme example and maybe get a little bit closer to home. This might not be extreme for some of you. The so this first example is a tweet from Dr. Denny Burke, who's a pastor and professor in Louisville. And in those capacities, he has a lot of experience interacting with young adults. And the other day on Twitter or X or whatever, Denny linked to this video that was kind of a spoof video, but the title of it was, God told me you're my wife. And it's some young dude um, using that line on, a, on the girl that he's interested in. And so Denny linked that and he, and he tweeted this, Dear young Christian men, God loves you, I love you, and that's why I'm telling you that if you ever play this card of telling a girl that God told you that you're to marry her, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. And if you're a young woman, if your young woman ever tells me that you've said this to her, I'm telling her to drop you like a hot potato. Okay, so that's an extreme example, but it's actually a lot more common than you'd think in a Bible college or a seminary environment. Here's another example, and this one from a conference that I recently attended. The guest speaker was a very godly Christian gentleman. He, he had a passionate zeal, undeniable, for the Lord and for sharing the gospel. And in his talks, he gave a lot of anecdotes, which were wonderful. But in these anecdotes, he's relaying all of these two-way conversations that he's having with God. And in one story, uh, he came home from a trip. He was out speaking somewhere. He came back, and he found that one of the, the supply line on one of his toilets was leaking. And so he uh, went off to Home Depot, and there was another guy in that plumbing aisle at Home Depot, and they found themselves standing beside each other, staring up at the rack where there's just an endless supply of supplies. And they're kind of paralyzed by all of the choices. And so our friend, my friend, looks over and strikes up a conversation about choices, about hard choices, and about easy choices, and just effortlessly transitions that into um, sharing the gospel with this guy and inviting him to trust Christ. Great, right? That's wonderful. Except that this guy went on to say what happened. He got back into his car and he's just delighted uh, at what had just happened. He's rejoicing. And he reported to us something that the Lord told him as he's rejoicing. He said that the Lord told him that he should have been more sensitive to going to Home Depot to meeting a need like that. And that the Lord shouldn't have had to have used a broken supply line to get him there. And, uh, and I hope that you'll forgive me for seriously doubting whether the Lord would ever say such a thing to him. Forgetting exactly the dynamics of how that conversation happened. And, and if the Lord did in fact not rebuke him, then despite all of his good intentions, this Christian gentleman was taking the Lord's name in vain. He, he was misusing it 
by that erroneous sort of endorsement. You would not believe how many people say to me, the Lord showed me this, and then go on to describe something trite or theologically incorrect or hermeneutically atrocious. And I I want you to understand me correctly because there's a lot of potential here for misunderstanding me. I'm not denying that we can stumble onto truths even through faulty interpretations. I'm certainly not denying that the Holy Spirit impresses truth inwardly in a mysterious sort of way on us. All I'm doing here is simply urging you to be way more careful with your language, as I believe that this commandment is urging us. Do not attach the Lord's name as some sort of endorsement, because that that endorsement, that thing that you're you're proclaiming might very well be erroneous and the Lord would want absolutely nothing to do with it. You would end up, you would end up lying about God. You'd essentially be saying that God is lying, which would mean that you're taking the Lord's name in vain. And no doubt I've created more questions than provided answer answers, but um, I'd be happy to talk more about this afterwards. And as I said, uh, no doubt you'll have some interesting discussions at small group. Uh, But I need to move on to a third and final specific misuse of the name of the Lord. And that occurs when we engage in in empty exaltation. Let me share a rule that we have at the Theobald's house. In our house, we love to be silly. Okay, I, I think that won't be hard for you to believe. Uh, for example, we like to make up goofy songs, especially when uh, Mr. Englert is over. What can I say? We love to sing silly songs with Larry. <laughs> but here's what never must be done. We never must, in our home, sing hymns and songs of praise to the Lord in a silly way. We must not sing it in exaggerated falsetto, you know, with goofy voices or substitute words. That would be to break this commandment. That would be to take the name of the Lord in vain. And that's what the word vain means. It means empty. It's like that puff of of um, vapor that you saw this morning when you breathed when you first walked outside. It's, it's got no, no substance to it. It just, it doesn't last. It's nothing. And maybe you've never contemplated singing a scripture song in a silly way, but, but we have all done something very similar. And maybe you've done it even here today. Who among us has not invo- invoked the the high and the holy name of God in prayer or in praise and worship while our minds were miles away. You know, we're singing holy, holy, holy. We're singing blessed trinity when we're thinking about football and pizza and wings. Jesus could have very easily been talking about us when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. That in that language, I believe, is meant to 
make us recall this third commandment uh, where we would use the Lord's name in vain in worship of all things. And perhaps you'll remember the accusations that the Lord God had against the people of Israel in Malachi's day. Uh, he charges them with despising his name, and that's a species, I believe, of taking his name in vain. The people are, again, this is something that's not even on their radar. It doesn't register. They, they're in disbelief. They, they say, how have we despised your name? And the Lord answers by pointing to their lame offerings. Literally, they're, they're lame. They're like limping, gimpy goats that they're bringing for sacrifice. And I wonder if it's ever occurred to you that you could very well be breaking the third commandment when the offering plates are passed around. Or when the, you could be very easily breaking the third commandment on the, the third chorus of the third song of the worship set. When you're just singing it, but you don't care about it, you're thinking about other things. You're despising the name of the Lord you're taking his name in vain. You need to be reminded how jealous the Lord is for his name. He, he would rather, this is what he says in Malachi, it, it would be better if we just all left and locked up all the doors and put padlocks and chains on them than to have his name evacuated of all of its weight and substance. The Lord continues his rebuke in Malachi chapter 1 with this affirmation. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And that leads us to consider very quickly in closing the commandment sanction. The commandments sanction. And if you haven't been convinced yet of the seriousness of this sin, perhaps the latter verse, half of this verse will convince you. And in the latter half of the verse, we're assured that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's a roundabout way my uh, English teachers would have had an issue with that sort of a double negative, but... When not being held guiltless means you're guilty. And when you hear the language of guilty or not guilty, it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that God is a judge. He, yes, he's holy and righteous, but he is a judge. He, he is the one with the authority to, to pardon or to punish severely. And he lets you know ahead of time Graciously, he lets you know the sanctions if you're going to disobey him in this respect. He says, anyone that is going to take his name in vain will not be held guiltless. I saw this viral video the other day of a girl who got pulled over for reckless driving. And uh, it quickly became clear that she had been drinking. Uh, but she tried to pull every card that society led her to believe that she could play. So she, she says, you know, I'm, I'm non-binary. Officer, you, you uh, misgendered me. I, felt, I feel threatened. I've got sensory issues. I've, 
I've got mental health issues. She's trotting all of these out. There, there was a time, I'm talking like an old guy again, there was a time when to get out of a ticket, a young lady would just kind of like bat her eyelashes. Now, young ladies in an attempt to get out of tickets apparently just like batter the police officer with every single one of her intersectional identities. And, and we, we laugh at that. It actually kind of makes us cry. But we try to do the same thing with the Lord, don't we? We try to excuse our behavior. We didn't know. We didn't mean anything by it. It's just a word. But he will not hold us guiltless. I think it's best if we just go ahead. And it's best, I think, if you agree with the cops that you were speeding, that you drank a little too much. And it's best to come clean with the Lord and agree with him that we are guilty of breaking the third commandment. We've broken it knowingly. We break it incessantly. And maybe you're careful not to curse, but you are very weak and very wandering when it comes to your worship. All of us are guilty of taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. And let's just go ahead and remember that God is true to his word and punishes the guilty. Both scripture and history are replete with examples of third commandment breakers who are struck down by the judgment of God even while their blasphemies are still in their mouths. God did not hold them guiltless. And, and this is bad news. That's, that's a bad news kind of a situation. In fact, when we see how we stack up against every single one of these Ten Commandments, we realize how guilty we are. These, all of these ten words are a bad news situation. In our house, we like to listen to a, a kid's musician named Randall Goodgame, and uh, we love his Slugs and Bugs album. And there's one song that they do on the Ten Commandments, and it calls on kids to know obey your parents Clarence and stuff like that it's very uh, cute and instructive and helpful but here's the chorus to that song the ten commandments no one can keep them all ten commandments even on your best behavior ten commandments no one can keep them all ten commandments and that's why we need a savior we are not held guiltless and that's why we need a savior. That's why we need the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God, who perfectly lived and perfectly kept the law. All 10, not just the third, all 613. Here, here's, here's one who always honored the name of the Lord, his, his father and his God. The Lord Jesus Christ was guiltless but he willingly went to the cross for third commandment violators, for blasphemers, like that thief beside him on the cross, and like me, and like you. That's, that's what Jesus did. And here's the mystery and the majesty of the cross. It's that Yahweh did not hold his own son guiltless, but he poured out his wrath upon him, wrath that should have been coming against me, 
because I'm a blasphemer. He pours it out on his son in my place. And I, and I sing, tis mercy all, immense and free, that, oh my God, it found out me. And then we understand that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow on heaven, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will be exalting the name of the Lord our God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, forever and forever, perfectly, giving him the honor that is due his name. And blasphemers will be made to bow and admit that the word that they used their whole lives as a cuss word is king. Brothers and sisters, we who have been called by his name, we now bear that name. We're called Christians. We are Christians. And we've been given the great privilege and the huge responsibility of going forth and making known the greatness of the name of the Lord our God to the ends of the earth. And we do that by the lives that we live. We do that by the, the language that we use. Not just with lips that are careful to honor the Lord, but with lips that are very quick to speak the gospel about how the, the guilty can be held guiltless because of the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the honor forever and ever.